Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Welcome back to the Baked and Awake podcast. This is episode 48 today as we sit down to record with you on a Wednesday afternoon, July 25th, 2018, at the time of recording. Uh, As is customary, or as I'm trying to make customary at the top of our shows, I want to let anyone new finding their way here today know that this podcast is not safe for work, so to speak, quote-unquote. Depends on your workplace, I guess. Content includes adult themes and language, for sure, as well as use of cannabis and discussion of same. Okay, so if you somehow find yourself listening to this and it doesn't sound like exactly what you were looking for, I suggest you listen anyway. You're probably a consenting adult. You might even learn something. This episode of the Baked and Awake podcast is brought to you by Billy's Gone Bananas, natural soft serve and smoothies of Traverse City, Michigan. The next time you find yourself in beautiful Traverse City, county seat of Grand Traverse County, make sure to stop by the Billy's Gone Bananas truck and try one or more of their all-natural, delicious-looking, chocolate or caramel-covered bananas, fresh fruit smoothies, and soft-serve ice cream treats that will put a smile on your face that will last all day long. Located just across the street from the probably award-winning The Workshop Brewing Company, Billy's Gone Bananas is also available to be booked to show up and serve at your next private event. Billy's Gone Bananas where we've already gone crazy over soft serve. So you can just enjoy it casually now and then, like a normal person. Follow and tweet directly to the team at at bananasbillies. So, uh, last episode... On the show, uh, just super quick recap for you. If you missed it, it's right there, right below the one you hit play on today. So you can roll right back after you finish this episode. No need to stop this right now. Uh, last episode, I got a new dab rig. Tested the heck out of it. Had a great time. Probably did about seven or eight dabs with you guys on that show. So, um, And I, I'm sure it showed. <laughs> so let me know what you think of that one. Uh, We talked about uh, care and feeding of your quartz bangers. That's your crystal glass bowl on your dab rigs. Um, Update on that. I haven't been perfectly successful at this. Uh, um, You know, uh, maybe I need to start timing my heat up cycle as well as my cool down cycle. Um, and more closely, like, discipline my torch technique. I don't know if I'm getting it too hot still. I'm not, per se, doing super hot dabs. As, as we know, um, you know, you go back and listen to that episode, you won't hear a bunch of hacking and coughing. Um, 
So, uh, you know, it might come down to a mix of everything, including quality of quartz, quality of uh, material that you're dabbing, and then technique. But, um, you know, both of my bangers are kind of so-so right now. They're both kind of slightly dirty, and I'm having increasing difficulty um, getting them down to, you know, super crisp and, and clean again. So, um, you know, welcome suggestions on that front. Uh, I'll keep working on it, and we'll come back to it. Maybe I'll share my ugly bangers with everybody. Sounds terrible on Instagram. We'll see. I don't know. Let me know if you want to see them. Uh, we also talked about Chinese smartphone app traps and the data siphoning that they allow. And don't think for a moment that um, if you're not a Chinese market uh, phone purchaser and subscriber uh, that you're utterly unaffected. Think of anybody who you may have who are friends in that part of the world um, or any folks who uh, happen to uh, participate in international business even lightweight tech communications emails and things like that on collaborative teams that are working remotely around the world if you're talking to somebody in those markets or areas those communications at least during that time could be affected in ways that you know really matter to you so uh, that's we, we went in on that go check that out uh finally last week we uh revisited the Thunderbolt project and some of their documentation, uh, specifically the intro uh, and the basics of the electric universe theory. Um, really fun celestial creation sort of theory stuff going on there. Um, I'm making up terms, celestial creation theory. What the fuck is that, Steve? I don't even know, and I haven't even started smoking yet, but go back, listen to that episode. That was episode 47, all right, um, in a nutshell for you. Um, yeah. So, and it was fun. So check it out if you, if you missed it. Um, let's see, what else is cool today? Uh, I, I, I was like looking at, I always like to make sure I, you know, share and mention where I've been fortunate enough to be, uh, had the podcast used, uh, you know, my little promos in other people's podcasts and things like that, where, um, you know, they uh, share maybe my recorded message about my podcast or they plug it in some way on their own and i was looking and i'm like oh snap i got like three four people helping me out this month um top of the list uh special appearances and mentions on uh mike peacock's big double episode back-to-back one-year podcast diversity podcast diversity episode blah 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 Mike, thanks for including me, buddy, uh, in your celebrations. Uh, I recorded a little short voicemail message for him, and uh, he shared that on the show as well as uh, clips from my visit to his show um, on a previous episode of On the Edge with Mike Peacock. So please check that out. Um, I also just recorded a few days ago with my uh, friends Shade and Lily Bongwater from the Daddy Issues with a Z podcast. Um, members of my Damaged Goods Network family over there. Um, and we had a lot of fun. I brought a strain of the week to try um, and smoke on the show with the girls. Uh, and, uh, you know, this was a remote visit, so I, I did my thing on my side, and they and they interviewed. We chatted, and I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't call it an interview. We chatted, and uh, but we got a little personable, personal about, um, you know, relationship kind of stuff. And uh, some of my ways of going about things, I guess we could say, with my lady love, Nicole. 
Um, and if she hears that, she's probably going to want to go back and listen to that episode of that podcast herself just to see what kind of smack I was talking. But, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, if you want to check that out, you know, you might see or hear a little different type of, you know, conversation out of me than we do on the show here all the time, right? So um, that's Daddy Issues. So, and uh, I think that episode's coming out any day now. If it's not out already, I better check with the ladies. Um, and then, let's see. Also, uh, so grateful. So, just, I love it every time I see this. And I can't believe I, I saw this, like, two, three times in the last couple days. Uh, my promo that I recorded where I'm like, Hey, I'm Steve from Bacon Awake. My podcast is the best. You should go listen to that shit right now. Press stop. Subscribe to me. You know... <laughs> Um, was featured by uh, three other podcasts. So holy moly. Uh, Manhouse Chatter Podcast. Thank you, my friends. Um, the boys from Manhouse Chatter uh, continually feeding me uh, cool stories about what's going on with cannabis down in Georgia, where they record out of. Uh, and, and, you know, throughout the rest of North America, they just track on a lot of those stories right alongside with me. And we have tons of great back channel conversations about that matter, um, uh, um, along with others. Um, the, also the no offense podcast, uh, featured our promo this month. Thank you guys. Uh, I'm going to dive in and listen to my first episode of your show, uh, this month because, well, <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, and likewise, one more, the off color discussions podcast also shared, uh, the baked and awake podcast promo. So dudes everybody wow i just i love that i can't believe that you chose me and you know allowed your audiences to get just a little hello from me um just love it so uh thank you all um everybody mentioned above is all listed and linked hard in the show notes so go right there scroll right to them and go find those podcasts and subscribe to them give them a listen my episode or another. I don't even care. Um, do want to definitely say, those of you who are fans of garden updates, um, I just wanted just a little short reminder. Uh, you should really be following Bluebird Farms on Instagram, okay, at Bluebird Farms. That's my wife Nicole's account. Um, she shares tons of fun and informative photos and video of all the animals, the chickens, the bunny rabbit, the the regular household pets, our uh, bee colony uh, so uh, just go there follow bluebird farms get uh, the lowdown on everything going down in the garden year-round here in the Pacific Northwest um, and then yeah I think so uh, today I also want to like just the softest announcement and light mention of something that I'm perhaps as excited about as everything I listed above there and that is a upcoming partnership with um, my good friends over at Top Tree, uh, and that is uh, of of great Instagram renown, Top Tree. So uh, for those of you who, like me, are self-described meme addicts um, and uh, burgeoning meme lords ourselves, uh, Top Tree kills it with their uh, cannabis-related content and uh, instagrams where they have the most fun and spend the most time uh i'm just saying 
right now to everybody that I am really excited about the conversations that I'm having with Top Tree. They are coming on board and getting involved legitimately as a podcast sponsor for Baked and Awake. Um, you know, we're trying it out for a few episodes to start and, and see where we can take this. Uh, there's discussion of collaborative uh, work, creative stuff uh, between Baked and Wake and Top Tree, uh, all of which is really like on message and fun. More, more importantly, fun. <laughs> so uh, as far as I'm concerned, so um, there's going to be special content. There's going to be content, you know, just sort of woven into the uh, fabric of the regular episodes and uh, maybe even a few streamlined, like focused episodes where I, I keep it tight and deliver a shorter format episode that's still kind of complete and stands on its own. Um, and uh, that should be just a ton of fun. So uh, look forward to that. And uh, thank you, Top Tree, for really getting involved like for being open to the conversation and keeping it going and keeping it moving forward um because this has definitely been a great feeling to feel the two-way excitement on that front so that's what's up stoked about that um all right well shoot where are we at are we recording do we even know okay yeah it looks good looks good we gotta we got a recording folks we have a podcast uh, so I'm holding my strain of the week in my hand. I have posted a photo of it already earlier today on Instagram. This is from our garden, Smooth Sailing Cannabis in Tacoma, Washington. Um, this is Oregon Silver Haze. And I'm excited about this strain because this is one that I've heard about a lot. And it's a little bit hyped these days in um, the Pacific Northwest, uh, you know, as the name might imply, this is not a this is not an indica. This is like a really sativa leaning strain, um, and uh, all bud here has it, um, you know, characterized as ninety percent sativa. Okay, um, let's see. This stuff of ours definitely tested solidly. I want to say the silver haze was uh, hitting at twenty four or twenty five percent total cannabinoids. Um, they show here on allbud.com uh, a range of 20 to 26% for Oregon Silver Haze. Let's read their description, though, and uh, let's light up and start, start enjoying it while we read the description together, okay? I rolled it up today. We got flour. All right. I can't promise I won't take a dab, too. You can't stop me. I do what I want. All right, but hmm. okay. Oregon Silver Haze is a heavily sativa dominant hybrid. That's a special Oregon cut of the infamous Silver Haze strain. Silver Haze is a cross of Northern Lights and Skunk Number One. Okay, okay. So you know, good, strong, like marquee strain lineage here. Although hard to come by at most dispensaries, Oregon Silver Haze is one potent bud that you'll need in your arsenal if you're a sativa lover who appreciates classic haze flavor. I wonder what the haze flavor is characterized as. Let's see. I mean, I think I, I'm, I'm getting a, like, yeah, like a, um, 
an herbal top note, um, like either not lavendery, but more like sagey, um, like a soapy or perfumey kind of um, top note. But that's me. Um, what do they say here? Uh, they have their little panels, aromas, flavors, lemon. There we go. That's that sage. I'm I'm translating lemon into sage on my palate. Uh, aromas, citrus, herbal, Kush, pungent and spicy. Eh, yeah, yeah, some of that's fair. Um, I have a dull nose, so we won't. We won't pretend I smell a whole bunch of different shit. All right, let's see here. The high starts with an energetic boost that leaves you feeling euphoric and uplifted with a sense of ease. As this state builds, a laser-sharp feeling of focus will wash over you, leaving you able to hone in on anything around you. You won't feel anxious in this state unless you talk a little too much at once. Okay, there you go. And that's what I do with sativas, you guys. Is I take it easy and then I can still enjoy them. If you have trouble with sativas, I would, you know, perhaps suggest that rather than avoid them entirely, reapproach the way you interact with them when you know that you've got a sativa in your hands. Um, yeah, go a little less hard in that paint, and you might be like, hey, this isn't so bad after all. So, because of these effects and its powerful 20 to 26% average THC level, Oregon Silver Haze is said to be perfect for treating a variety of conditions including chronic pain, insomnia, chronic stress, inattentiveness, and depression. This bud has PC long minty green nugs with dark orange hairs and a frosty thick coating of white crystal trichomes. Well, ours trended a little purple. It had some purple going on. Um, maybe that's the Kush uh, that sometimes will go purple on you. I know they say almost any strain can purple on you if it's cured in the wrong conditions or not not wrong, cured in certain conditions or grown in, grown in certain conditions. I think it's cold at night. We'll get you some purple. So they say here, Oregon Silver Haze has a classic flavor of grassy citrus and Kush with a touch of haze upon exhale. The aroma is of sweet herbs and citrus with a cushy haze overtone that's fragrantly floral. Well, they use that haze word so liberally there that they really assume we know what haze tastes like. <laughs> eh. Let's see how stoned we get, shall we? All right. So that's Oregon Silver Haze. So, basically have like four stories for you here. Let's see if I can do them in a reasonable time. Um, and I'm going to start with the heaviest and most uh, like worrisome for once and then work my way back up to something lighter and more positive, hopefully. Um, and we'll see how that feels, you know, because um, I kind of usually start easy and then get progressively more heavy as we go through the stories that we're, we're looking at each day so on each episode that is so let's see uh so this first story comes from rolling stone magazine and i found this on rolling stone online on rollingstone.com um it is it is a new story it it is uh newer that is uh from this month uh the author is Matt Tybee, T-A-I-B-B-I. -B -B -I. And um, 
Matt writes today or on this day about an American citizen uh, known as Bilal Abdul Karim, who uh, found out through a number of circumstances that he lived through and then through inquiries into uh, said experiences that he was on, or probably on, uh, what has come to be known as America's Kill List. That is like the U.S. government's intelligence communities or military, uh, like, valid target list. Now, um, that might mean that you could be, you know, arrested or captured, not necessarily just automatically killed, but that at some level there's some authorization that says if it's, you know, too difficult or too dangerous um, to apprehend a person, um, or maybe they're in a uh, region of the world where they would not be uh, willingly extradited otherwise, and they, they, like, satisfy a certain threat to the country, that um, agencies that are, you know, looking at those individuals and tracking them who have located them may be empowered to, you know, strike and employ deadly force against this person in absence of due process okay that's the key thing here it's like a field judgment and summary execution that could be enacted on targets or individuals that are on these lists list this list lists like it. I don't know how many there are okay so It is a scary topic, okay, and uh, yeah, we don't undertake even reading about it lightly. Um, I'm sure that Matt Tybee, the writer of this article, even gave himself a moment's pause and reflection before penning this one. Um, Yeah, it's just, it's a concerning story. Let's let's dive in, though. We're going to read large parts of it. Um, we will skim others, of course, because um, I would rather paraphrase this than read the entire article verbatim to you. Um, the link, of course, will be in the show notes for everyone to tunnel back in and actually read everything. Visit the links that are embedded in the article where they point you at some other uh, stories that also, you know, shed some light on the topic. So, here we go. How to Survive America's Kill List. When a U.S. citizen heard he was on his own country's drone target list, he wasn't sure he believed it. After five near misses, he does, and is suing the United States to contest his own execution. Bilal Abdul Karim is an expert in staying alive. Born Daryl Lamont Phelps, he grew up just north of the Bronx in Mount Vernon, New York. He did what lots of kids in his neighborhood were doing in the late 70s and 80s. He spent his time rolling on the floor laughing 
to comics like Flip Wilson and Richard Pryor. Later, after college at SUNY Purchase in Westchester, he decided to try stand-up himself. Hecklers were a problem. In upscale white clubs, where he sometimes performed, audiences would clap politely if his jokes missed. Not so much in the Brooklyn clubs he worked. Mostly black audiences there let him have it when he was off. Black folks always want to get involved in the act, you know what I'm saying? He recalls laughing. Then you gotta respond with some yo mama so fat jokes just to get them to sit down and shut up. Over a decade later, after some major life changes, he'd converted to Islam and found himself working as a TV reporter in the Middle East under his new name, Bilal Abdul Karim. He again drew upon his stand-up experience to stay alive. Only he wasn't worried about dying on stage this time. This time it was more serious. In the waning days of the Battle of Aleppo, as Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad's forces closed in on the city, Karim found himself in a room full of desperate free Syrian army rebels. I was understandably nervous, he remembers. I was the only American inside of this very small area that was besieged. The talk in the room turned ominous. One of the guys said, you know what? I heard you get $20,000 for kidnapping an American. Kareem pauses as he recalls the scene. He would have stood out in that crowd, as he does everywhere in the Middle East. A black New Yorker with a loud belly laugh. You've got these nanoseconds to come up with some kind of response, he explains. You don't want them to see you sweat. All the eyes in the room turned toward Kareem. Would this American fetch 20,000? Nah, man, he said to his audience. That's just for the white ones. The room roared with laughter. I was like, phew, Kareem says. Then slipping out, all right, guys, I gotta go. Soon he was forced to cheat death again. According to Kareem, in the summer of 2016, things began to explode, I think literally explode, around him with suspicious frequency. In the space of a few months, he survived five different attacks. In the first, the Syrian office of the controversial Islamist TV network he founded, On the Ground News, was hit by a missile. In the second, a stretch of road where he was setting up a film location became a sizzling crater moments after he walked up the street to look for a better view. It was in the third incident, he says, when he first saw an American drone overhead. He and his crew were shooting a story in a remote town in the Aleppo countryside. They were picking off al-Qaeda and al-Nusra members, he says. 
It didn't pay... I didn't pay it much attention, I thought. It's not the first time I've heard a drone. But after he'd completed the segment and begun heading back to the car with his crew, he still heard the drone. That's when we first felt a little bit alarmed, he remembers, speaking to Skype. So I guess he Skyped, you know, with this guy for the uh, story. For 20 minutes to be hovering over us, that wasn't normal. Usually they come and then they go. His crew got into the car and drove a mile or two, then parked to wait for an interview subject. Suddenly, a nearby SUV exploded. I thought the earth had split, Kareem says. Our car was flipping into the air. I thought the car had fallen off something into the earth. The SUV, he alleges, had been hit with a Hellfire missile. Kareem broke a toe, but he says he and his crew were otherwise miraculously unscathed. Soon after, Kareem was tipped off by a source in Turkey that he had been put on a list of targets at Insiril... Insirlik, Insirlik Air Base, excuse me, a launching pad for American drones. They decided to warn me rather than read about it in the newspaper. In the fourth attack that summer, an explosion again rocked his office, which was in the basement of a building that doubled as a charity center. A woman an elderly man and a 10-year-old girl happened to be there that day. They were all killed. A few weeks later, he survived another explosion, he says, outside a Syrian artillery college that had recently fallen into rebel hands. Kareem now had no doubt that he was on America's infamous kill list. There's a link here. Most Americans don't even know we have such a thing. We do. Officially, it goes by the ghoulish, bureaucratic euphemism, disposition matrix. Seemingly conceived in the Obama years, the lethal list about which little is known outside a few leaks and court pleadings. Appears to sort people into targeting for capture, interrogation, or assassination by drone. It was run by a star chamber of two dozen security officials and the president. According to a 2012 New York Times report, they met once a week to decide which targets around the world lived or died. The meetings became known as Terror Tuesdays. So these are things that are not super new. These were stories at the time. Those of us who are, you know, a little bit older, those of us who, you know, have been adults for a few years, 
um, will have remembered some of these stories at the time. They came up. They were important. They were so important that they were very heavily managed and quickly squashed right back down out of our collective like consciousness and the public space one after the other. Uh, and this article does a, a pretty darn good job of um, pointing that out as they go here uh, in a few different ways. So let's continue. Got my sativa-fueled interruption going for you. Yeah, the second half. So I smoke. I, I rolled little smaller ones, like little pinners, on, on my little small bamboo roller um, today. Um, and even the second half of this, like, you know, these are like 0.75 grammars or something like that, probably. Um, and I'm definitely getting pretty stony. And it's a sativa, head-centered, back-of-the-neck-centered um, uh, sort of experience right now. Heart rate's good. I'm not tripping yet. <laughs> so uh, that's the update on the Silver Haze. All right, so yeah, so this stuff isn't new, okay? This stuff was happening under our beloved, dearly departed President Obama. <laughs> He's not departed, but uh, yeah. Um, you know, he wasn't perfect. He wasn't a saint. Um, you know, we've been dealing with, you know, what I would say are myriad behaviors and actions on the on the part of our all sorts of different government facets of our government and, and expressions of it uh, that we routinely look at other countries doing similar things and call them violations we call them crimes we call them you know acts of aggression and uh, we just make excuses for them continually because it's us so us being the United States and, uh, to a large extent, the Western, sort of the NATO powers, uh, you know, that, that's that, that's pontification, and that's brought to you by Oregon Silver Haze. <laughs> Alrighty. So, not new. Back to the article. As Obama was preparing to leave office, candidate Donald Trump was promising to jack up the number of bombings in the Middle East. You have to take out their families, he said. That's a link to that quote. It's one of the few promises he's fulfilled. Reports vary, but some estimate that Trump has upped the pace of drone attacks by about four or five times the Obama rate, which itself was ten times the rate of Bush. We kill suspects whose names we know and whose names we don't. We kill the guilty and the not guilty. We kill men, but also women and children. We kill by day and by night. We fire missiles at confirmed visual targets, but also at cell phone numbers we hope belong to targets. When he first heard he was on this list, Kareem was aghast. There was no situation like the siege of Aleppo, 
where a quick joke might turn the crowd. How could anyone reverse the decision of a deadly bureaucracy so secret and inaccessible that even if it had an off switch, few in the civilian world would know where to find it? How could he talk his way out of this one? Kareem appealed for help to Clive Stafford Smith, an Anglo-American attorney he'd met in his travels, who'd founded a London-based human rights organization called Reprieve. With Reprieve's help, Kareem did what the system asks a law-abiding American citizen with a grievance to do. He sued, filing a complaint in district court in Washington, D.C. on March 30th, 2017 asking the U.S. government to take him off the kill list, at least until he had a chance to challenge the evidence against him. The case, still unresolved as of right now, it's more than a year later, the case has awesome implications not just for Kareem, but for all Americans, all people everywhere for that matter. It is not a stretch to say that it's one of the most important lawsuits to ever cross the desk of a federal judge. The core of the Bill of Rights is in play, and a wrong result could formalize a slide into authoritarianism that began long ago, but accelerated after 9-11. Since that day, we've given presidents enormous power to make war, to torture, to detain indefinitely. And our entire legal system has been transformed on a variety of fronts, placing huge questions about illegal searches, warrantless arrest, indefinite detention, torture, and other matters behind an impenetrable wall of secrecy outside the reach of courts. And yet, Nobody is paying attention. While America obsesses over Russia, Stormy Daniels and Kim Jong-un, almost no one is covering Kareem's trial. His race against time effort to escape the American killing machine is too surreal, even in the Trump era. But it's also a potentially devastating last straw moment in the history of America's recent dystopian slide with the executive branch asking for the ultimate and dictatorial powers, the right to kill even its own citizens without having to explain itself. They have an embedded video of Kareem here telling us, taking us through one of the sites. We won't play it here. I definitely think you should watch it. Harrowing, to say the least. So, you know, we as a as a nation, we profess not to practice assassination. So, um, but we have these practices under the auspices of, I guess, war and homeland security, right? So, the, the story goes on to explain 
the law governing assassination in America has long been a paradox. It is explicitly both legal and illegal. The legal wormhole first opened in 1975 when a committee headed by Idaho Senator Frank Church exposed a generation of alleged repugnant practices by the CIA and other secret agencies, including the U.S.'s possible involvement in assassinations of foreign leaders like Rafael El Jefe Trujillo of the Dominican Republic and South Vietnamese President Ngo Dinh Diem. In the wake of these disclosures, then-President Gerald Ford signed an executive order that said, quote, no employee of the United States government shall engage in or conspire to engage in political assassination. Subsequent orders by Jimmy Carter in 1978 and Ronald Reagan in 1981 doubled down on the ban, though Reagan went on to attempt to assassinate Muammar Gaddafi. Finally, in 1998, under Bill Clinton, and then again in the George W. Bush years, classified Justice Department memoranda were written explaining, here again a link to it, <clears throat> according to the Washington Post, that executive orders banning assassination do not prevent the president from lawfully singling out a terrorist for death by covert action. So if that isn't doublespeak of the highest order, then there's no such thing. Do as we say, not as we do. Even before planes struck the Twin Towers, in other words, presidents had already given themselves permission to ignore their own executive orders. In the week after 9-11, the House and Senate passed a joint revolution, revolution, resolution called the AUMF, Authorization to Use Military Force, that gave the president license to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons who planned, authorized, committed, or aided the 9-11 attacks. Robotized killings began almost immediately. The first known drone assassination took place in Afghanistan in 2001. By 2012, we were flying at least 16 drone missions per day, mostly for reconnaissance, but some for more deadly reasons. And we had committed lethal drone attacks in six countries, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Libya, Somalia, Iraq, and Yemen. These were supported by a pan-Arabian archipelago of airstrips with bases in Djibouti, Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and even the Seychelles. 
you know, so yeah, they rely on a lot of international cooperation to this thuggish behavior, you know, to carry it out. A crucial Rubicon was crossed in 2011 when the Obama administration decided to drone bomb New Mexico-born Anwar L. Alwaki, a U.S. citizen and suspected al-Qaeda terrorist. There was some outcry about the president now having authority to kill even Americans without due process. I think it's sad, said U.S. Congressman Ron Paul. But the uproar soon faded, and Americans' assassination program accelerated still more. By late 2011, we'd killed more than 2,000 militants, quote-unquote. <clears throat> So the objection made weekly there by U.S. Congressman Ron Paul at the time they represented with his one, I think it's sad quote, I, I do believe he had a little more to say on the topic at the time, but really it all centered around lack of due process um, and the fact that that's a slippery slope. Um, and as we see there, by late in the same year, we had killed more than 2,000 militants, probably total dating back to 2001. But acceleration, ramp up of this type of practice. It's a good thing they can't use them here, right? All right, so. Bringing it forward to this year, May of this year, the first. They go on to say a muggy day in Washington, D.C. in a mostly empty federal courtroom just off the mall. A gaunt but cheerful judge named Rosemary Collier, dressed in a traditional black robe and cancer survivor's bandana sits down to hear Ahmad Mafak Zaidan and Bilal Abdul Karim versus Donald Day Trump, J. Trump, <laughs> et al. Uh, so that must be the, you know, the administration. Karim's co-plaintiff, Ahmad Zaidan, is a Pakistani Syrian journalist who, like Karim, came to believe he was on the kill list. His hunch came when his name turned up in materials leaked by whistleblower Ed Snowden. Zidane found what appeared to be an NSA PowerPoint slide, identifying him as a member of both Al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood, and showing him with a terror watchlist ID number. A one-time Pakistan bureau chief for Al Jazeera, Zidane twice interviewed Osama bin Laden. In an interview with The Intercept years ago, Zidane absolutely denied being a member of any terrorist group, Zidane was not reached for this story. Kareem says he and Zidane have neither met nor spoken, though they share Reprieve's representation. Independently of each other, they both first tried writing a letter to Trump begging for mercy. Neither man got an answer. What will the courts say now? So... 
Next, this is interesting. I guess this is, you know, I read this earlier, and I'm coming to the conclusion this probably is from transcript, so this is probably the judge's real greeting. She says here, okay, everybody, Judge Collier says, we're here for this really, really interesting case. Who's going to argue for the plaintiff? Jumping back up a level, they say, the question before Collier would challenge the most gifted legal mind. At issue is the fact that America, in the wake of 9-11, has become two countries. One is a democracy, visible to the population, and governed by the lofty laws and rules and constitutional principles we learned about in Schoolhouse Rock. Ah, the good old days. I, I bet. I mean, my, my kids haven't really, they're not that exposed to Schoolhouse Rock. It's pretty old stuff. Uh, alrighty. The Second Nation is an authoritarian... The Second Nation is an authoritarian state within a state, governed exclusively by the executive branch. In this parallel world, all rights redound to a bureaucracy that may kill anyone it pleases at any time, restrained only by the inclinations of the executive. Essentially, Kareem's lawyers are appealing to the first America, Collier's courtroom, to force the second, secret America, to hear him out. Um, secret America could also be probably very accurately referred to as the deep state. Um, a term that's, you know, tossed around a lot these days. So um, one to look into, the deep state, of course, being, you know, the, the, the notion that, let's say, in the case of the United States, aside from our duly elected public government and representatives, there are, you know, executive type and uh, corporate type high level individuals and organizations that like occupy extremely powerful positions that are not elected and that are immune to any such elections process or indeed you know public observation of even what they do at all and largely any censure or prosecution any you know anybody to put them in check so that would be a deep state um, whether that's secret societies or what uh, whether that's the military industrial complex so to speak uh, or those things and others combined. Working not entirely together, but in ways that further all their collective goals, whatever those may be. 
Yeah, so they call it the secret America, but I, I think, you know, uh, my friends at the Bones and Tubs podcast did a really recent episode about silent weapons for quiet wars, um, and I think it's Bill Cooper. Um, that's a great podcast in general, Bones and Tubs. That episode talks about a book written by a man called Bill Cooper, uh, who published this book, self-published it back in the late 80s, I want to say, early 90s. Um, I think it was the early 90s. And then, um, you know, went on to tour and talk about it for a few years. Um and share the information, um, but the whole time seemingly, you know, relatively altruistically, um, you know, really trying to get the word out about what, you know, something that he became aware of and that he shared as, uh, you know, a sort of prophetic document that was uh, presented to him as a sort of a training manual for a, at that time, you know, unnamed sort of uh, secret organization that greatly resembles what I would call the modern deep state. Uh, and uh, it was highly predictive of, like, what looks a lot like our modern world today. So, um, yeah, that's a little jump out for the... And, uh, and plug for the Bones and Tubs podcast, but a great episode there on silent weapons for quiet wars so um go check that out for sure let me know what your thoughts were on that one too um yeah those guys do a great job over there so uh, all right continuing on the uh story here uh nobody seems to know what would happen if kareem or zaidan tried to come to court and another thing that makes this case uniquely bizarre, would Kareem be allowed to walk in and take a seat at the plaintiff's table? Or would he be instantly placed under arrest outside the courthouse, stuffed in the trunk of a Crown Victoria at the airport? You know, renditioned. Um, you know, we would he even make it to court? Um, so, yeah, they, they didn't come to court. They sent their lawyers in, right? Kareem didn't have a guest. The Justice Department won't comment. So Kareem and Zidon are represented in person here by a young, quick-witted lawyer named Tara Plochoki of the Beltway firm Lewis Bach Kaufman Middlemas. Partners to Reprieve. Representing the government is a shortish, dark-haired attorney named Stephen McCoy Elliott. The privilege of seeing this Bach-shouldered cadaverous functionary in court is as close to Plochaki and by extension Kareem and Zidon will get to actually confronting their accusers. Elliot technically works for the Justice Department but it's not clear what other agency or agencies he represents here. The DOJ wouldn't specify, relaying in a statement, quote, federal programs branch attorneys litigate on behalf of approximately 100 federal agencies, the president, cabinet officers, and other government officials. <laughs> All right, so the purpose of this hearing is to consider a motion Elliot has made to dismiss the Zidon Kareem suit. 
government's main argument is that neither plaintiff has plausibly made a case that he is on the kill list. Why, Elliot asks, does Kareem only mention a drone in one of the five attacks listed in the complaint? And besides, just because Kareem experienced explosions, this preposterous euphemism will be used repeatedly throughout the hearing, does not necessarily mean they are American explosions. Quote, the much more plausible explanation is that Plaintiff Karim experienced explosions in Syria because he was covering the civ Syrian civil war as a journalist, offers Elliot in a monotone voice. This deadpan absurdity seems to irritate Judge Collier. Tell me, she asks Elliot, how many of the combatants in Syria used drones? Collier is asking if Elliot is really going to force her to waste time arguing who the hell else in Syria shoots Hellfire missiles at people out of drones. Apparent, apparently, Elliot will, in fact, waste the judge's time in this fashion. He affects ignorance. I would not know, Your Honor. Elliot's argument doesn't advance much beyond this point. Collier, sometime later, summarizes the government's position. Quote, so, your argument is that if, A, we didn't have anything to do with it, but if we did, we did so only because of a determination that, and I'll talk about Mr. Kareem because he's the one with the constitutional rights, that Mr. Kareem was a grave threat to national security, and the executive gets to make that determination, not a court. The next words out of Collier's mouth will reveal the plot twist to what, until now, has seemed like a parody of legal colloquy. She looks down to Elliot. Every case agrees with you on that, she concedes. For Kareem, a.k.a. the one with the constitutional rights, this is the unfortunate punchline to this proceeding. This very federal court has heard drone cases before. And in each previous case, courts have punted on the two Americas dilemma. Worse, by refusing to hear those cases, judges in the prior decisions inadvertently created a legal framework for future drone strikes. The most glaring example involved a hushed-up catastrophe six years before. Yeah, I remember this one. August 29, 2012, a small town in eastern Yemen called Kashmir. A local cleric named Salim Bil bin Ali Jaber waits beneath a palm tree. The bold imam is known around the country for his oratory, denouncing terrorism. After evening prayer, he had been told that three frightening men had come to town looking for him just days after he'd preached against Al-Qaeda. Jaber is concerned enough about meeting with them that he brings his nephew, a local policeman, named Walid bin Ali Jaber, for protection. After the three imposing youths arrive, the group stands beneath the palm tree, poised for confrontation. But at the exact moment the meeting was to have begun, an American drone, ostensibly targeting the three young men, drops Hellfire missiles on the whole group. Everyone is incinerated, 
including both Jaber's. Jaber's brother-in-law, Faisal bin Ali Jaber, was on a rooftop that evening. Until he saw the flash in the distance, it had been a happy night, a party for his son's wedding. I saw the lightning in the sky, he recalls through a translator. Then I heard the missile, and we all saw the explosion. When Faisal raced to the site, he discovered what was left of his brother-in-law. The bodies were in bits, and he knew immediately he'd been killed by the Americans. Only American drones operate at night, he says. Maybe that's because they can't fly, you know, with lights and target people effectively at night with conventional aircraft. He couldn't understand why his brother had died. Salim bin Ali Jaber was not just an opponent of terrorism, but traveled around the country with other imams, speaking particularly to young men he felt otherwise might be targeted for recruitment. He was one of the few prominent Yemenis willing to publicly oppose Al-Qaeda. They were fighting the same battle, Faisal says, of his brother-in-law in the U.S. They were fighting the same enemy. In July 2014, two years after the Jabers were killed, an official from the Yemeni Natural National Security Bureau met with a member of Faisal's family and handed over a plastic bag with $100,000 in cash, saying it came from the U.S., though the security official later denied U.S. involvement. Quote, condolence or other ex gratia payments may be available for those injured and the families of those killed. A White House national security official told Reuters in 2015. This is our beavis and butthead version of an apology for, fil- for killing innocents. Here's like some money and stuff. <laughs> Uh, okay, everybody. Well, guess what? Uh, we've just passed the one-hour mark. This story takes a lot longer to read out loud, parse remotely meaningfully, pause to give any reflection on any of the, you know, sort of more salient points. Um, and so, nevertheless, I had been ready to continue and, uh, push on through in one shot with this story, and then had planned a little intermission, um, and was going to continue with the planned program of events for the week for this episode, but, uh, I gotta tell you, everybody, I just had one of the bigger technicals that I've had in a while now, um... 
And it, maybe it was a stoner moment. I don't know. I didn't hit a button. It's that dreaded main mix button. Um, those of us who record with mixers out there might understand. So, disastrously, although I could hear myself in my headset monitor, I didn't, I wasn't watching my sine wave, you know, on the, on the recording software. I wasn't recording anything. I sat here for a full hour and kept on working on the story with you. <clears throat> so, it's all right. We're going to wrap it up right now and then take a break for the day. Me, I will anyway. I'll do the sound production on this, push this out as a part one. Uh, and then this evening, when it's cooled down up here a little bit, I'll come back upstairs. We'll jump back in. We'll do the rest. We'll cover the rest of the stories that we had planned for episode 48. Um, and it'll be great. It'll be no problem. So, before we go, I want to uh, hip you to a couple things that I'm excited about. Um, I've been talking with, uh, again, my friends Nate Lopez, Jamal Harrington, uh, also uh, our other local comedian uh, friend, Kate Carlson Carlson. Uh, and uh, guys, hopefully I'll uh, get this back to Nathan and get all of you to have... Uh, checked out this episode and this little shout out but what i'm starting to think i'd like to do with those folks is bring them together in one place the three of them and have sort of a roundtable conversation discussion about cannabis and comedy uh specifically live stand-up comedy and the culture that goes that surrounds that both for the audience and for the performers and one that i think has been a unspoken contract between those audiences forever uh between the audience and those performance forever so um so yeah uh guys if you're listening to this for the first time jamal nate kate surprise <laughs> uh it's not a total surprise because uh, nate and i talked about this to the slightest extent so we're looking forward to that soon um also uh very very excited about uh, Goldilocks from Seshcast coming to town in just a few weeks for Hempfest 2018, and I'm gonna, if I have to corner him in a porta potty or at the uh, line for Crazy Corn at the uh, event itself, uh, we're gonna do some kind of recording together. Um, I don't know if we're just gonna do a segment together or if we'll be able to collaborate on some content that might come together to be, who knows, the better part of an episode. We'll see. I did I did much of an episode on Hempfest last year, this time last year. Um, in addition to that, probably the most exciting thing that um, I'll just sort of begin to drop hints about now, but we're, we're working on the details and things are taking shape. Um, looking forward to a collaboration with my friends uh, over at Top Tree of Internet Renown. Uh, follow at Top Tree, a great, hilarious cannabis-related, uh, cannabis-focused kind of meme and humor account. Um, Top Tree is uh, just a lot of fun. They are uh, really hyped about the podcast, incredibly, believe it or not. Um, 
I know. I, I mean, I express incredulity because I'm just like, I can't believe anybody listens or cares or wants to, you know, see this continue um, other than myself. But they really do seem to. And uh, they're uh, working on getting involved with the podcast as sort of a sponsor, uh, as or also as a collaborator in terms of some behind the scenes stuff and some like merch uh, potential uh, plans. So uh, cool stuff, nothing overly crazily ambitious, um, but I'm really excited about that. And I encourage all of you who, um, you know, hang with me already over on Instagram, go ahead and give Top Tree a follow. Let's see here. And then, yeah, you know, okay. So, yeah, I was going to also just sort of, I had some fun at the top of the episode with um, Billy's Gone Bananas. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, just sort of gave them a semi-serious plug, right? We had some fun. Um, To have your, whatever it might be, hometown, your business, your podcast maybe you wrote a book maybe you have a special event you're planning um and you listen to the show and you love the show and you want to hear me plug your event or podcast or business or whatever it is like i said just holler at me email me talk to us at bakedandawake.com you can also DM me. As I said, I'm very active on Instagram. You can follow me there. DM me there at Baked and Awake. And for the low, low price of no charge at all, I'll do something like I did tonight for Billy's Gone Bananas for you on an upcoming episode. All right, finally, uh, I'm going to give a few shout outs, semi rapid fire, just really low overhead shout outs for people that I love. And uh, I'm going to tell you their Instagram handles in almost every case here, and then one or two words about why you should find and follow them. And that is what we will go out with today. And here we go. We are starting with at Legion of Bud. Follow them first and foremost for art. At Future 4200 for permaculture. At BBHWMS, multiple sclerosis, and CBD cannabis. All cannabis, really, to be fair. At Honor Co founder, beautiful high end grow bags. At Oli Demon. Beautiful metal folk art. At Stay Fluid. Food trucks. At Bones and Tubs. The Occult. At Legion of the Goat. Legion underscore of underscore the underscore goat. Goats. And vapes. (laughs) <laughs> at Ninja Turtle 610 Bud Tender at Stone Red Owl 
Bud Tender, veteran. At Bayesian Scarseth, concert violin. At that one cool cat. K and cool, K and cat. Scooter culture. Pacific Northwest. At Tommy Boy 240. Honda Groms. Drift cars. At They Call Me the Chadillac. Another Honda Grom buddy. And a special shout out to my cousin Drew. In town visiting from Florida. Hung out with last night. Had a great, great time with you, cousin. It was awesome seeing you. Looking forward to hopefully doing that again this evening. All right, everybody. Um, So I'm going to regroup. We're going to streamline that second half of this story, which is an incredibly important story. That being Rolling Stone's recent story by Matt Tybee, published July 19th of this year, entitled How to Survive America's Kill List. I'll be back publishing part two within the next 24 hours or so for everybody. In the meantime, feel free to look into the story yourselves. Um, Engage me on Instagram about it. Whatever else you're doing, I hope that you will make sure to smoke indica and do shit anyway.